Father, we thank you so much for this time to, um, to, to learn about your word, to learn about the second commandment. I ask, Father, that you would give us uh, uh, strength in this hour to think through these things and to, and to help us to um, study these things carefully and to help, us, to help us to see how it applies to our lives, Father. So bless this time now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the strangest sins that you'll ever come across in Christianity is jealousy. It's one of the strangest sins you'll actually ever find. And jealousy is usually defined as wanting something that you don't have. Uh, you know, like another word for jealousy would be envy. You know, so I think you guys know what jealousy is. But, but jealousy is a weird sin. It's really bizarre. And now jealousy is not strange because it's rare or because it's unusual or anything like that. Uh, it's actually quite common. People get jealous all the time. Uh, but everybody, even though everybody gets jealous, jealousy is a weird sin. And it's odd. And you might be asking yourself, well, why? Why is it a weird sin if it's common and it's ordinary? Why is it weird? Well, because of this particular reason. God is jealous. God is jealous. And God is jealous all the time. And so that kind of makes this sin a weird sin. Exodus 34, 14 says, for you, uh, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6, 15, for the Lord your God in, your, in the midst of you is a jealous God. God's a jealous God. And so jealousy's a very strange sin uh, because God does it all the time. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, now, like, wait a minute, you know, time out here. How come God gets to be jealous, but I can't? That doesn't make any sense. How is that possible? Well, that's a great question. You see, there must be more to jealousy than what meets the eye. There must be more. Because how can jealousy be a sin and God committed all the time? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And a minute ago, I said that jealousy is usually defined as wanting something you don't have. And that's a good definition. But it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Because it doesn't help us distinguish between good jealousy and bad jealousy. If jealousy is wanting something you don't have, then how do you know if you're being righteously jealous, like God always is, or being sinfully jealous, like we always tend to be? So let me help kind of clear the fog for you for a moment. Good jealousy, righteous jealousy, God's kind of jealousy is wanting something you don't have that rightfully belongs to you. Therefore, bad jealousy Sinful jealousy, the kind of jealousy you were used to thinking about, is wanting something you don't have that doesn't rightfully belong to you. Okay? Do you see the difference? Jealousy is neither good or bad. It's, it all depends on whether you have the right to be jealous over what, you, uh, over what you want. So, for example, if you're wondering, like, how does this work? In the room next door... There's probably some kind of a toddler throwing a tantrum right now, okay? And, be, and he's throwing a tantrum because he can't play with his buddy's toy, okay? 
And if you put your ear to the door, you might hear one of our dear volunteers say to this toddler, you know, Johnny, stop being jealous. That's not your toy. Bobby had it first, and you can ask Bobby to play with it, but if he doesn't let you, then you need to be nice and quit throwing a fit, okay? So that's an example of sinful jealousy, okay? Johnny doesn't own that toy, and so it's wrong for him to be jealous, okay? But we would never say such a thing to a wife whose husband is cheating on her. That would be ridiculous. You know, you, you never say, oh, stop being jealous. I know he's cheating on you, but you're just being selfish. Like, that would, that would never work, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, no one in their right mind would say such a thing. And it's, here's the thing. It's right for her to be jealous uh, for her husband because he's her husband. Uh, he belongs to her. And so it's right for her to be jealous. So there's a sinful jealousy and there's a righteous jealousy. When God's people stray from him and pursue other gods and they create idols for themselves, God gets uber jealous, and rightfully so. Uh, like a wife gets jealous for her husband or a husband gets jealous for, her, uh, for his wife. God gets jealous because those people belong to God. When God's people are unfaithful to him, uh, God doesn't lay back and let bygones be bygones. Uh, God's jealousy kicks into high gear uh, and it drives him to be more faithful to them than he's ever been to them before. Uh, the book of Hosea is a fantastic illustration of this. Uh, in the book, it tells us that Israel has forsaken God and that they've turned to, uh, to other gods and they've turned to other idols. And so what does God do? What does God do in that moment? Does he just leave Israel alone and just kind of say, well, they're gone. There's nothing I can do. No, he pursues them. He goes after them like a faithful husband whose wife has left him. He tries to bring her back. So Hosea 2.14 says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall uh, be remembered by my, my name, uh, and they shall be remembered my, by, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Uh, Israel's lack of faithfulness motivates God to activate his faithfulness, and it's all because he's righteously jealous for them. Uh, jealousy is, is an important quality of God, and I think it's often forgotten, but for our purposes this morning, I want you to realize that, that jealousy is the heart of the second commandment. And so last week, uh, we talked about the second commandment, uh, do not make an idol, right? And so, and 
that is the base, that is what the second commandment's all about. Don't make an idol. And to illustrate uh, for you what the second commandment's all about, I took you to Judges chapter 17 and 18. And we saw the example of Micah and, uh, you know, this Levite guy and this tribe of Dan. And they're all out to use God to make themselves prosper. And so we learned a couple of principles. We learned that the second commandment is all about manipulating God. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And the second commandment is all about elevating yourself. And if you're going to manipulate God, your whole goal is to make yourself God. That's the point. And so also the second commandment, really, if you were to sum it all up, is all about a careless attitude toward God. And that's what we learned last time. Now, let me, for a moment, put this another way, okay? The second commandment is all about an unfaithful attitude toward a faithful God, an unfaithful attitude toward a faithful God. And that's really what, uh, what I want to talk to you guys about today. That's bottom line, what the, the second commandment is all about. Making an idol out of God is acting in unfaithfulness. Uh, turning God into an idol is betrayal. That's really what it is. It provokes God to be more, all the more jealous for you. So before we look at the New Testament, uh, I want you to see this. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and let's look at verse 8, where the second commandment is, okay? Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. It says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness that is in heaven above or that is on the earth below or that is in the water beneath the earth. And I think that's what we think of as the second commandment, right? But look at verse 9. It continues. You shall not worship them, nor shall you serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. And here's the thing. Why is God so against making him into an idol? Because when you do that, you're stabbing him in the back. You're like a sailor who, who organizes a coup against his captain. You're like a traitor or a defector who betrays his country. You're like a mole operati- operating inside of an organization uh, for years, only to sabotage it when they least expect it. And idolatry is really just that. It's the greatest double cross of all time. That's what the second commandment's all about. And you might be like, why? Why is it such a problem? Doesn't making God into like a, an idol or some kind of a statue, doesn't that honor him? Wouldn't that bring him, um, uh, in a sense, you know, uh, some kind of uh, respect uh, to him or something like that? It doesn't. It doesn't. Because trying to make a statue out of God is you trying to be the creator of God. Now think about it for a moment. What do you have to do to make an idol? You have to create it, you have to form it, you have to design it. So what you're doing when you're making God into an idol is you're imitating what God did when he created you. That's what you're doing. It's, it's completely backwards. The, the creation is trying to create the creator, and that doesn't make any sense at all. And that's why I said that it's all about you becoming God. That's the point of, of breaking the second commandment. 
you're trying to step into God's shoes. So it's not honoring to God. It's not respecting God. It's actually dishonoring. It's disrespectful. And so while it looks like you're trying to get closer to God, you're actually driving a wedge between you and himself. And it drives God mad because God wants to have a personal, harmonious relationship with you. And so when you're trying to kick God off his throne, you suggest to God that you want nothing to do with him. And that's why the second commandment is all about an unfaithful attitude toward a faithful God. Because breaking the second commandments is kind of like cheating on God. And so now when we take a a look at the second commandment in the New Testament, that's the picture that we see all over the place. And in particular, we see that in the book of, of 2 Corinthians. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. We'll kind of begin here, and then we'll kind of hop around a little bit, okay? Chapter 6, verse 16. Verse 16. It says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, This is just a complicated way of saying, why would you put idols into God's temple? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, Why would you mix idolatry with God? And that's what the second commandment's all about, mixing God with idols, turning God into an idol. And so we find the second commandment restated here in a different way in the New Testament. But we don't just find the second commandment in the New Testament. Do you remember our three purposes of the Ten Commandments? Do you guys remember what they are? One is, Jill, yeah? Yeah, good. To broadcast who God is, what he's all about. What's another one? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Shine is a beacon of hope in a fallen world. Good. What's the, what's the last one? Yeah. Very good. Show your love for God by your love for others. Very good. So each commandment does all three of these things in its own unique way. And we saw how the first commandment accomplished all three purposes a couple weeks ago. Now let's look at how the second commandment fulfills all of these three purposes, okay? So that's kind of the outline that I've given you for today. That's how we're going to walk through this, all right? What are the purposes of the second commandment? How do they show up in the New Testament here? Number one, the second commandment is meant to broadcast that God is faithful to the unfaithful. God is faithful to the unfaithful. And you'll have to see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So, so just kind of look up a little bit in your, in your Bible or something like that, or go back a page or so. It says, so then if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Uh, the old things have passed away, behold, and new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not regarding, uh, not counting their trespasses against them uh, and he was establishing among us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were uh, encouraging you through us. And we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a big word that Paul keeps using in this passage, and that word is reconciliation. What does reconciliation mean? What do you think that means? That's a big word. Does anyone know what that means? Reconciliation, yeah. Yeah, good, to bring them back into a relationship. It means to become friends again, okay? This happens all the time with people who, you know, have friendships and stuff like that, and they, you know, get upset at each other over something stupid, and, you know, they're, like, not friends for, like, the next five minutes, and then they get back together again, and everything's okie-dokie, right? That's reconciliation, okay? Bef- before, but, you know, this is a much bigger deal of reconciliation in the Bible here, okay? Before you are a Christian, you are an enemy of God. You're not God's friend. You're at odds with him. And the reason you're at odds with him is because, like I said before, you've chosen to make him into an idol. You've chosen to be God in his place. You're driving a wedge between yourself and God. And so somehow, some way, you've tried to act as the creator and make God into creation, and you've manipulated God, and you've elevated yourself. That doesn't make you a friend of God that makes you his enemy. And so you're competing for his throne. But God has given us reconciliation. God has given us the chance to restore our relationship with him. And he's done this through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the beautiful news of the gospel, that God has reconciled man to himself. When you're unfaithful and breaking the second commandment to manipulate God for yourself, God was still faithful to pursue you and to put the relationship back together because he's a jealous God. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so that, that's kind of the nature of the, of the second commandment. It's meant to broadcast that God is faithful to the unfaithful. Uh, do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son? Jesus tells the story of this son who grabbed his father's inheritance and went off and spent all the money on whatever he thought would make him happy. And nothing did. Nothing made him happy. He squandered it all to the point where he didn't have any money left. And he had to, he basically was starving and he had to begin to eat the food of pigs. Like he had to like, he just basically was rolling around in a pig pen like a pig. It was really weird and gross. But that's the way it happened. That, that's, that's the story. And it's, a, it's actually a very <clears throat> sad story if it was a true story. But he finally came to his senses, and he ran back to his father. But he knew in his culture that his father would never accept him. Never accept him. His father would treat him as an outcast. And so he was just hoping against hope that when he got home, his father wouldn't kill him. Because that's in that culture, that's what you would do. Because if your son would squander your, your entire family inheritance, you, just, you would disown him. And you would have their, the entire society disown him. But what happens when he returns? His father, it says in Luke 15, 20, uh, while his son was still a far way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His father ran to him. An older man in that culture was never supposed to run. That was shameful. But this father was willing to bear all the shame of his culture just to welcome his son back home. And he gave him a party, and he like gave him his inheritance back and everything. It was crazy. Against all odds, this father reached out to his son in reconciliation. And the second commandment tells us that God is jealous for his people. And Paul says, he encourages the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. And that's the question that I have for you. Are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled to God? Are you, have you come like the prodigal? Have you come broken, helpless, willing to be reconciled? Because God wants to be reconciled with you. But you need to come broken over your sin, willing to repent. Are you jealous for God? Because God is jealous for you. So the second commandment invites you to put down your idols and to come and worship at the feet of Jesus, the one and the only true image of God. Please don't leave this room without being reconciled to God. That's my number one prayer for all of you. I pray that often for you, that each one of you is reconciled to God. I know many of you are, but I know some of you likely are not. That's the reality. And my biggest challenge to you is, please be reconciled to God. So the second commandment, even in the New Testament here, is meant to broadcast that God's been faithful the whole time that you're unfaithful. Number two, though, it moves on and it tells us that the second commandment is meant to show that you care about faithfulness to God by your faithfulness to godly people. Uh, if you turn your attention to chapter 6, you'll kind of see this taking place here. Uh, we see Paul saying, uh, our ministry to you uh, of reconciliation is honorable. It's right. We're, what we've done to you is it, it, we've treated you well. And for the next like 10 verses or so, Paul lists all the qualifications that are necessary to say, hey, we've done nothing to discredit ourselves in our ministry toward you. We've suffered on your behalf. We've had attitudes of integrity. We were motivated by the power of God. We had genuine motivations and intentions with what we were doing. There's no reason that you shouldn't trust us. All these things tell us that tell you that we have been uh, be, been true to you, and we want you to be reconciled to us. And so Paul begs the question, why are you so hesitant, Corinthians, to be reconciled to us? What more do you want from us? And so that's kind of where Paul is at. And look at verse 11. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says, Our mouth is open to you, Corinthians, uh, our heart has been uh, is wide open. Uh, you are not constrained by us, but you are constrained by your own affections. Uh, but with respect to, uh, to this same exchange, uh, I speak as to children, 
open wide to us. Paul says, you haven't done anything. We haven't done anything to hurt you, uh, but you are hurting yourself by your own affections. He says, open up to us, open up to us. And so the principle we learn about the second commandment has to do with the second purpose here, that the second commandment is meant to show that you care about God's faithfulness and you care about God's faithfulness by being faithful to other godly people in your life. Paul says, if you're not for us, then you're against us. And if you're against us, then guess who you're also against? God. You're against God. Notice how Paul connects your relationship with others to your relationship with God. You can't separate the two. Paul says, if you want to be faithful to God, you must be faithful to God's people. And so that's kind of the picture that Paul is giving here of what faithfulness to God looks like. It means being faithful to God's people as well. And so 2 Corinthians 6.14 says something kind of strange here. It looks like he's kind of going off topic, but he's not. But he says, stop becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers. Unequally yoked. It's like, that's weird. What does that even mean, unequally yoked? You guys know what that means? What does that mean? It means to be married to an unbeliever, okay? To be unequally yoked means to be married to an unbeliever. And you're like, well, why didn't he just say that? Like, why not just say, don't be married to, you know, unbelievers kind of thing? Well, he could have said that, but there's a reason why he said it this way, but we don't have time to talk about it right now, okay? But let me (laughs) explain to you where this bizarre phrase, unequally yoked, came from, uh, because it will help you understand what's going on here, okay? The words unequally yoked come from a law in the Old Testament where you're not supposed to have two different kinds of animals plowing a field at the same time. Like, they're not supposed to be, like, going up next against, you know, like, they're not supposed to be, like, next to each other and stuff. So, like, I don't know. Let's do, um, let's do, like, a horse. Just, they would never do this, but let's do a horse, okay? And this is, like, a cow, okay? Okay? You're not supposed to have them plowing at the same time together, okay? And the idea behind this law is that it's not beneficial to mix up what's plowing your field. Because if you have a donkey on one side and like an ox on the other side, uh, the ox is going to drag the donkey all through the field. And uh, it's going to like mess up your field. And it's going to like scar the donkey for life, okay? So uh, you want two animals of the same kind plowing the field at the same time. Uh, It doesn't matter what the two animals are necessarily. Uh, It could be two donkeys, it could be two oxen, it could be two rabbits for all I care, you know? (laughs) Just some two of the same kind, okay? So donkeys and oxen aren't compatible for plowing. Well, believers and unbelievers aren't compatible for marriage. Stick a believer in a marriage with an unbeliever, and it's going to get very messy very quickly because you're coming at life from two two different perspectives, And you're telling everybody, hey, we have everything in common. And that's why we're getting married. It doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you do such a thing? And so Paul says, don't marry unbelievers. And so that's kind of the idea. How on earth 
Can these two kinds of people be BFFs? It doesn't make any sense. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to criticize mixed marriages of believers and unbelievers. Um, I know of actually some good marriages where there are the, you know, like the husband's an unbeliever, the wife's a believer, and they actually love each other and they're married and, and their marriages are fine. It's okay. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying here is that my concern is for the Christian who wants to marry an unbeliever. Why would you want to marry an unbeliever? It doesn't make any sense. Paul says, whose side are you on? If you're going to marry an unbeliever, you're choosing to be on the side of an unbeliever. But you need to be on the side of the believer. You need to be on the side of God. And so this is very, very important. Your human relationships show what your relationship with God is like. It's very important. And so this is, here's where this really particularly hits home for you. If your best friends uh, are openly not Christian, what does that say about you? What does that say about you? If you love to hang out with unbelievers all the time and you really don't really care for hanging out with believers, uh, wh- what, where do you stand before God? That's really a really critical thing to think about. If, you're, if you just like to hang out with unbelievers all the time, if that's your primary like, you know, you know, um, arena of friendship, then there's a problem there. You're showing that you really don't care about your relationship with God. Now, I like the fact that you guys all like hanging out together. I think that's a good sign. That's fantastic. But ask yourself this question, even so. What do I have more in common with, an unbeliever or a believer? What would I prefer, what would I prefer spending my time with? A believer or an unbeliever? Who would I prefer spending my time with? A believer or an unbeliever? And why do I want to spend time with them? Why? It's a great question to ask because it begins to show what you think, uh, what your relationship with God is actually like. The second commandment was meant to show you care about faithfulness to God by your faithfulness to godly people. And lastly, the second commandment is meant to shine the hope of a faithful God on an unfaithful world. On an unfaithful world. Um, Look at verse 16 for a moment again. Look at verse 16. It says, uh, but what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, uh, I will dwell among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and separate yourselves, says the Lord, and do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you in, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Paul says something weird here. He says, we are the temple of the living God. We are like this really weird temple and stuff where you offer sacrifices, you know, and I don't know, that's, those are doors, but we're the temple of the living God. Isn't that kind of funny? We're a temple. Christians are a temple. What's that supposed to mean? Like, am I going to offer sacrifices in my liver or something like that? Like, what, what does that even mean? Well, look at, look at how he describes this in verse 16. He says, I will dwell among them and I will walk among them. He says, basically, God's temple 
is very simply just the place where he lives. That's where he takes residence. Uh, it's his primary pr- uh, place of, of, you know, of living. When God calls you his temple, he's saying, I live inside of you. I have a personal relationship with you. But it's more than that. It's more than that. You see, a temple wasn't just a place where God lived. Or else, you know, God could like set up shop on Jupiter somewhere far away where no one could see his temple and just, you know, hang out there for the rest of eternity, you know. But he didn't do that. Where was the temple? It was in Israel in the center of the world so that everyone could see it. The temple was meant to be an attention getter. It was meant to be like a a big banner or like a big flag that was waving high in the air to grab everyone's attention and let them know this is where God lives. It was a massive beacon to attract people to God. And because you're a temple, everyone is looking to you to see what you're all about, to see God. Uh, There's no temple in Israel anymore. It's destroyed. It's gone. But God still has a temple, a place that showcases where he lives, and that temple is you, Christian. It's you. If you are a Christian, it's you. And when everyone looks at you, they become curious. Why is this person different? Who is this God he serves? Why does she live that way? As a temple, you're more than a house of God. You're an advertisement for God. You're one big commercial for God who lives inside you. You're one epic movie trailer for Christ. The fact that God actually lives inside a man proves that man can be made right with God. That's the fact. And you get to be that kind of advertisement. And so the second commandment, doesn't just help us see how God is faithful to us. It also instructs us how to witness his faithfulness to a faithless world. And so how do you apply this? How, do you, how does this really get real for you? Well, here's one example. The book of 2 Corinthians isn't the only letter that tells us that we're living, breathing temples. Uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians does it as well. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 puts it this way. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And you have the Holy Spirit from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, and here's your application, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. That's the point. That's the message. That how do I demonstrate that that God is, lives inside me and that that it's all about having a relationship with god well you glorify god with your body you know like like at first first corinthians 6 even says flee sexual immorality don't allow your body to be engaged in things that are that are repulsive and that are wrong and that are going to show that that god is is somehow associated with sexual immorality that doesn't make any sense you belong to god now god owns you Don't let your body get mixed up with sin. Stay away from it. Put it to death. You know, put to death pornography. Get rid of it. Snuff it out. 
Eliminate sexual thoughts. They don't belong. Stop flirting. It's not helpful. It's unhealthy. It's destructive. And it's dangerous. You're God's temple now. You don't belong to this world. You've got better things to be doing than messing around with the simple pleasures this world has to offer. Uh, You belong to something bigger than what this world considers a big deal. So quit playing around. Because God, or sorry, because the second commandment was meant to shine the hope of a faithful God on an unfaithful world. Now I open today's sermon by talking to you about jealousy. When God gets jealous, it's always for a good reason. It's always for a good reason. But there are also times when men in the Bible got jealous, and it was for a good reason also. One of those guys was named Phineas. Phineas. Not Phineas from Phineas and Ferb, mind you. But Phineas lived during the time of Moses when Israel was wandering around the wilderness for a really long time, like 40 years long time. And at one point during their nasty long journey through the wilderness, a nation called Moab began to entice the people of Israel to worship their gods and to sleep with their women. That's what they did. And so that's what a lot of the men in Israel did. They worshiped the other gods and they began to sleep with the women of Moab. And Phineas got uber jealous, jealous for God because he saw his own people running away from God. And so Phineas grabbed a spear and he basically shish two people who were, who, who were uh, sleeping together. Like he literally like shish kebabbed them. He, like this. Okay? She's really tall. He like shish kebabbed them. Okay? Crazy. That's what he did. It's, it's, it's like crazy. But it was right. It was right for him to do that. And God tells us in Numbers 25, 11, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from my people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. In other words, what does that mean? Because Phineas shish those two people, Israel didn't die that day. God was going to kill Israel because he was so jealous for them. And the only way that he could see that he could actually like turn them back was to just like kill them all, kill them all. That's the, only, that's the only solution to make sure that they would no longer run away from him. Just kill them. But Phineas, in a sense, did it for him with two people. And God said, okay, that, that satisfies my jealousy. Phineas was faithful to God because Phineas respected God for who he was. Israel was trying to use God to fulfill their own desires. They were going after other idols. They were pursuing other women and doing things they shouldn't have been doing. But Phineas saw right through it, and he acted with righteous jealousy on behalf of God. I think Phineas serves as a great example for us. He serves as a wonderful example. What do you do when you're tempted to sin against God? What do you do when you're tempted to break the second commandment, to manipulate God, to use him, to put yourself in his place, to try to become God, you be proactive like Phineas. 
You take action. You put your sin to death. You radically amputate the wickedness in your heart. You get serious and you get active. Why? Because the Lord, your God, is jealous for you and you want to be jealous for him. Bow with me in prayer. Our Father, you are jealous for us. And Lord, we want to be jealous for you. We want to pursue you with all of our hearts and with all of our souls. Father, please help us to get serious about our walk with Christ in this way. And if we have sins, idols in our lives that are, that are preventing us and prohibiting us from worshiping you with all of our hearts, Father, help us to cut those off and to run to you and to run to the foot of the cross and to find forgiveness in Christ, to find reconciliation with you because you freely give us hope and forgiveness in Christ. Father, it's free. There's nothing we need to bring. There's no, not, no kind of money. There's no kind of good works that we can bring to satisfy your jealousy. Lord, the jealousy that you uh, was satisfied by uh, the death of Christ on the cross. It was satisfied. And Father, we find hope in that. We trust in Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't trust in Christ, may they repent of their sins and turn to you for the first time. May they become jealous for, for God. Father, I pray that as you would do a work in each person's heart and help us to, to love you and to be excited about you and to really put you on display as the, the true and high and lifted up God as you are. May we never try to force you into an idol, to make you something that you're not, to try to manipulate or use you to our own ends. May we serve you with everything we've got. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray these things. Amen.